You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly arts show. My name is Diana Moxon. This week on the show, we start locally and then we're jetting off to Europe for a segment on the 64th annual Eurovision Song Contest, my absolute favourite event of the year, which takes place tomorrow in Tel Aviv and will feature songs from 25 European countries plus Australia, but more on that later. I can totally geek out on Eurovision, but I limited my enthusiasm to just one half of the show. But first, we are staying a little closer to home and motoring just a wee way up the road to Ararok, not only to look at what they have coming up this summer, but to meet anew their new Director of Marketing and Communications, the erstwhile arts reporter for the Columbia Daily Tribune, Amy Wilder, who I think might outpace me in her circuitous, peripatetic career path. She graduated early from high school and started her further education in the aviation program at the University of Central Missouri in Warrensburg. She wanted to be an astronaut or, failing that, pilot tour groups to adventurous locations. But then she switched her major a few times, ending up in international studies and spent a semester in Europe, after which she just wrote her own degree in visual culture. After graduating, she was a freelance writer about arts and culture and eventually ended up in Columbia at the Columbia Daily Tribune. Amy, it is a treat to have you on the show. It's an honor to be here, Diana, (laughs) and that was probably the most impressive introduction I've ever had. I found it online. (laughs) I'm going to have to edit my um, information online, I think. Well, that is really interesting. I had no idea that you wanted to be a pilot. I did. I I took a few flying lessons when I was about 14 years old, so I actually learned to fly before I learned to drive, but (laughs) I never got my license. Okay, so so we couldn't jet off to Europe together after the show to go to the Eurovision Song Contest. It does feel slightly odd to be sitting in the interviewer seat when for years I was the one being interviewed by you as I was at the Columbia Art League and you were writing about the Columbia Art League. And so you are kind of a hard act to follow and I was feeling a little nervous and I should up my game because you are such a seasoned reporter. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) Now, although we are here to talk about the Lyceum Theatre's summer season, I did just want to take a part of the show to talk about you and what you have been up to since you departed Columbia, as you have covered a lot of ground. You left here to go to grad school. I did. Tell us where you went and what kind of shifts in perception you experienced there. Oh, well, that's a big question. (laughs) I went off to grad school at St. John's College. Um, They have two campuses, one in Annapolis, Maryland, and one in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I chose the Santa Fe campus um, because, of course, who wouldn't? Right. Um, So I spent two years there reading the classics, uh, everything from Plato to de Tocqueville and beyond, and graduated last May with my master's degree. And did you get out of it what you were hoping to get out of it? going into it. I mean, you had such a a big career behind you already. Why go back to grad school at this point? Uh, St. John's was actually something I've wanted to do since I was about 22 years old. I saw an advertisement for them, which was just a stack of books, which is appealing to me. I've always been kind of a bookworm and a nerd. And so I finally got the chance to go a few years ago. 
it wasn't what I expected it to be precisely, but I think I did get out of it what, what I wanted, which was um, learning more about who I am and my place in the world, I suppose, at large. So. Because you were already, I mean, you are a great writer. Well, so in terms of reading more books, do you think you're an even better writer now? Did it alter your craft? I think I'm better at asking questions, um, which is what St. John's emphasizes. That it's a Socratic school. Um, so you spend time sitting around a table with people from very diverse walks of life at different stages in their life and reading, you know, the great books, which are the great books because they speak to people in, you know, throughout time at different levels and different places in their life. So um, I think it it just sort of has a freeing effect to really like dig down into your soul. And <laughs> that sounds really broad and expansive. I guess that fits with the description you gave of me when you introduced me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I got the sense because we're Facebook friends. And so I've, I don't care for Facebook too terribly much, but it has been really nice because when people leave town, you get to follow their adventures. And so I feel like I've been able to keep in touch with you. And so I, I got the sense from reading your Facebook post during that time that there was a lot of soul searching going on, a lot of personal growth going on, as well as the acquisition of knowledge. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think in many ways it's less about acquisition of facts than it is about soul searching. Right. Um, and so I felt when I graduated that I had fulfilled some deep need I had to go on this quest, I guess, to, to the school. And um, I find that I'm content wherever I am now. And I look at the world differently as well, which you know, I had the same experience when I pursued an art degree. When you start to study drawing and painting, um, you begin to look at the world very differently on a fundamentally level. So I think this is taking it to the next level. So every day is sort of magical for me. Can you put into words how you see the world differently? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure if I can put it into words. I would say that I'll never be discontent in particular place in my life a geographical place geographical place but also where I'm at in in myself and in my life I would say I I don't feel like I'm unfulfilled I suppose I, f I feel like that comes from within now we're it's, getting into philosophy that is beautiful <laughs> I didn't know we were going to get this deep. Well, and then and then after after this amazing experience at St. John's College in Santa Fe, then you disappeared and went traveling. I did. To the Far East. I did. Yes. Tell us where you went. Uh, I spent almost seven months in Vietnam with a couple of trips to Japan. Um, and I, I actually was editing footnotes for a book on the late Roman Empire, and it allowed me to work remotely. And I had a good friend from my undergrad days in college who's living in Hanoi um, and had a spare bedroom and just invited me to couch surf. So I went for it. And that was the impetus, that you, that you knew somebody Basically, there? Basically, yes. Yeah. Were you in China, too, for a while? Uh, I was thinking about going to China, but I decided I liked Hanoi and stayed there. I love Vietnam. I've been there several times. Really? I used to live in Thailand, and so I have good friends in Ho Chi Minh City. And when I've been back to visit them, we've spent time in Hanoi, which I prefer of the two cities by far. So give us your postcard 
from Vietnam? Oh, my postcard from Vietnam. Um, you know, it's not at all what I expected. I'd read a lot about it before I went. Um, it's an absolutely gorgeous country. The beaches are every bit as beautiful as the beaches in Thailand, but they're much less crowded. I remember going to the beach and maybe there were five other people where we were. It's just absolutely gorgeous. The people are absolutely wonderful. They're so kind, they're so welcoming. They're very tolerant <laughs> and they have a very rich history. I think Hanoi is about 5,000 years old and it's it's been through a lot. So it's really it was really interesting to be there and see um, the development that's happening right now. The city is just sort of going up very quickly, a lot like Shanghai 20 years ago, I've been told. So it was an interesting time to be there and see these enormous economic changes happening. And the country is developing in other ways as well. They've developed their own car line, car brands. So they were rolling those out quite literally while I was there. Um, so it was, it was really interesting. Did you travel around the country a lot? I did. I uh, got to go up into the Himalayas and do some trekking with the Hmong people near Sapa, Vietnam. It's very close to the Chinese border. Uh, I went to Da Nang and Hoi An a couple of times, and I took one trip to Ho Chi Minh City. So, um, and the different parts of the country are very different. The people are different. The, the feeling is different. So it's, it's, it was interesting to see. I think it's the country with the largest population under 30 in the world. And I noticed that when I was there, that you just see so many young families and children. There are mm -hmm. children everywhere. And I was asking a tour guide when we were there last time, you know, there's a lot of children here. And he said, well, we had to repopulate the country. You know, so many people mm -hmm. had died uh, during the as they call it, the American War. And so they felt this need to recreate their people. And so there's just this you know, huge population boom and so many people under 30. And, uh, and like you say, I was there in 2000 and gosh, six or seven, I guess, and loved Hanoi, much lower key than Ho Chi Minh City, motorbikes everywhere, not many cars, not many trucks, just everybody carrying things on the back of their moped, whether it was a wardrobe or a dog or their whole family. <laughs> It's yes. amazing what yes. you can balance on a moped. And then when we went back in 2017 or 18, 16, 17, something like that, the, the change was huge. There were so many more cars on the road. There were so many more buildings in Hanoi. And you could see this huge change had taken place over the previous 10 years. And it was exciting to see it begin to change. But I, I love the old Hanoi, so I hope they are able to preserve it. I love the fact that each street had its own craft. So if you wanted pots and pans, you went to Pots and Pans Street. If you wanted silk, you went to Silk Street. <laughs> if you wanted chicken, you yeah. went to Chicken Street. <laughs> oh, I thought the chickens were everywhere. <laughs> Every street is Chicken Street. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Talk about crossing the road in Vietnam. Oh, yeah. It's. Do you remember the game? I think it was from the 90s called Frogger. It was like a really low-tech game. Uh, you're a frog and you're trying to cross traffic that's going in different speeds. So I, I always felt like I was playing Frogger, but it was um, level 10,000 or something. You know, you would never actually get to it in the game. Um, I didn't do it very often. I, I tended to take cabs because I liked having the steel frame <laughs> around me. <laughs> the traffic is, it's amazing actually to watch. And it's amazing that they don't actually get into very many accidents considering the volume of people on the road. And um, But they somehow, they know what to do. You know, they don't seem to be following rules according to Western standards, but but they are. They're communicating with each other and they're really right. paying attention. And it's, it's kind of amazing once you get over your fear 
and pay attention. So. It is an amazing piece of choreography. I love yeah. sitting on a corner. There, there were lots of bars. And so you could sit in a bar on the corner on a little plastic stool with a, a local beer and just watching the traffic. And so you'd be basically on a blind corner. So if somebody is coming from your left, they can't see you know, who's coming from the right at all. Mm-hmm. And then there, there are just thousands and thousands of mopeds. There's the occasional car these days. And there are, like I say, all sorts of things balanced on the back of the mopeds, really large oh, yeah. pieces of furniture, a family of four. And they just seem to sense where the other person is coming and they judge it in advance. They know where that person's going to be and they manage to bypass them, even if they can't really see them coming. Yeah, they do. It, they honk a lot. And I I came to the conclusion that they have something kind of like sonar that bats have, you know, except for honking. So they tell each other where they're at. You don't see them checking their blind spots or things like that, which kind of terrified me at first, but they, they do pay attention to each other. And so, yeah. And if you're going to cross the road, the advice is if you wait until there's no traffic, you'll be there forever. So you just have to step out and like like the sonar they will anticipate where you will be when they will get to you so don't stop don't freak out in the middle of the road and suddenly stop because then you will cause a crash unless there's a bus coming (laughs) (laughs) you don't want to play chicken with the buses that is true no i actually saw a blind person crossing the street in hanoi and it was kind of at dusk so you really couldn't even see them very well they had a you know the cane and they made it and i was just amazed um, because clearly that person lives in Hanoi and navigates the city like that every day. So, you know, it's... It's, it's probably even a disadvantage being blind crossing the street. It's probably an advantage because you don't know what's well, coming and you can just step out without freaking out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're not going to hesitate, right, at the right. wrong moment. <laughs> and so, and you also, whilst you were in Vietnam, like you said, you went to Japan and then I think earlier this year you went back to Japan again. I what, did. What is it about Japan that, that you love so much? The food. <laughs> I love the food. I spend a lot of time eating sushi. Basically, my entire itinerary in Japan revolved around finding the next amazing meal. I think I probably gained about 10 pounds in a week there. So it's all good, healthy food, though. (laughs) I did other stuff, too. I went to, you know, samurai castles and the Miyazaki Museum, the Ghibli Museum, which was really cool. So in terms of Japan or Vietnam, in terms of who you are now, if you had to go back and live in one of those countries, which one would you choose? Yeah, they're so different. They're totally different. And I love them both for different reasons. Kind Um, of chaos and order. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, Japanese, Japan has its own brand of chaos as well. Um, It's very orderly on the street and in public, but... Uh, at night after work, everybody, it, people don't drink on the weekends there, they drink after work. And so everybody goes to the pubs. If you go into a pub, these very mild mannered, quiet Japanese people suddenly get very loud and rowdy and hilarious. And um, so it's interesting to see that contrast. Um, in Vietnam, it's the opposite. Everybody's loud and rowdy on the streets and then very quiet in interior spaces. So, you know, they're in some ways, they're opposites. But I, I would love to live in either country again if I had the opportunity. I'm sure that when you left the Tribune and set out on this new adventure, the future felt very uncertain and you felt like you were stepping off a cliff, all this safety to all this just void. So if you could go back to Amy at the Tribune and give her some reassuring advice, oh, what would it be? That's, that's a very good question. I, in many ways, I'm still the same person. I think I've always been comfortable with change and a little bit of uncertainty in my life and I've always been willing willing to say yes you know to to the great adventure as it were I guess I definitely did leave behind a lot of comfort and security and transitions are always hard even if you're mentally prepared for them so I I don't think there's anything that I would change or that I would have done differently about 
my journey. So. Well, and all of that brings us to April the 1st of this year yeah. when you started at the Lyceum Theatre in Ararock as their new Marketing and Communications Director. Has a love of theatre always been in your veins? It has, actually. When I was in middle school, I was a very shy little girl, um, reticent and uh, kind of nerdy. I was a bookworm. And I actually I read a book about a girl who went to Chautauquas with her family. They gave lectures and she began taking theater classes to sort of get over her own shyness. And I was inspired by that. So I went to the local community theater and auditioned for a role that I didn't get. Um, <laughs> but the next year I tried again and I ended up in the chorus and then Every year after that through high school, I was involved in some manner in um, community and school theater productions. And theater is really where I found myself and sort of grew up and realized that, you know, I wasn't going to be an actor, <laughs> but uh, I, I will always love the theater. So there are no aspirations to go back on the stage and... I don't have Accident. stage fright, but um, I, I wouldn't say that that's where my talents lie. <laughs> I think that was pretty clear very early. So, Maybe you could yeah. write a play. Yeah, I would love to write a play. I've, <laughs> I've been thinking about that. I saw that you had described your new job as being like work, the musical. Yeah. So what, what, what is a typical day like? <laughs> oh, well, the cool thing about the Lyceum is there there really is no typical day. Uh, every day is different. It's a really wonderful place to work for that reason. Um, it's also very challenging for that reason because there's so much that you kind of have to manage. And, you know, we were talking before the segment about how when you work for a nonprofit, you have to do everything from, you know, pick up trash on the floor to finding a new room handle. Right, spreadsheets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so that's really exciting. I, I love it. But as a marketing and communications, and you, it's your job to spread the word about all of the shows that are coming right. up and about the theatre generally. And how far are you sending that message out? Around Missouri or further? Mostly around Missouri. Um, as far as Kansas City and St. Louis, we advertise in markets there, mainly in mid-Missouri, because that's where most of our audience comes from. But I have heard from people as far away as Springfield. Um, one of our board members actually lives in Illinois, I believe. So it's and we have a very active board who roll up their sleeves and get involved, and which is wonderful, actually. So. Yeah, when you're a small nonprofit, I mean, you really rely on the board to be kind of part of your your staff. I mean, they're an yes. unpaid group of people, and so you can't you can't ask them to do too much if it's not of their own volition. But really, I mean, you're so reliant on those people to be a, a pair of hands all through the year. Yeah. So we're on the cusp of your big summer season. Yes. Actors are starting to arrive, I guess, next week from yes. across the country. And you have brand new accommodation. Is that all ready to go? It is. We had an open house at the beginning of May. Uh, so we have a dormitory pre-existing. It was built several years ago with a commons area. Uh, and we added two four-bedroom apartments, which were completed at the end of April. And the last of the furniture and household items have been moved in. And the actor rehearsals begin Tuesday. So the artistic staff, many of them have already arrived and are trickling in. And the 
cast members will be arriving, I believe, this weekend. So, When Quinn was last on the show, we were talking about the culture shock of arriving from somewhere like New York with 24-hour <laughs> noise versus the kind of urban sensory deprivation of the first few days in Ararat without a Starbucks to hand. Do you yeah. plan activities to help people acclimatize? Uh, you know, we actually have a wonderful group of volunteers called the Lyceum Liaisons. It's a group of about 15 women who put together all sorts of welcome treats and gifts and help plan activities. They invite the cast members to parties and, you know, do things to make them feel very welcome. And we, you know, we do try to give them information about the surrounding communities so that they know where to go for shopping and restaurants and entertainment <laughs> outside of the theater. I mean, most of the shows at most are three weekends and sometimes they're a little bit shorter. So unless an actor is committing to the whole season, which I'm not sure if, if that happens, then they're not really an hour up for too long, two or three weeks and then gone. Yeah, many of our ensemble members um, stay through multiple productions and a few of the principal actors do as well. So yeah, it's kind of a whirlwind. Some of them will be here just a few weeks. The magic of Arrow Rock is that, and I've heard so many people tell stories about finding themselves in Arrow Rock, is that people tend to go there and discover Arrow Rock and then find ways to come back again and again. I met one of our longtime actors, uh, Tim Shu, who's a Broadway performer, and he's actually touring right now with the national tour of Hello, Dolly. Uh, he came to Arrow Rock for the Friends of Arrow Rock meeting, and um, he and his wife, I believe, met in Arrow Rock. They own a house there now, but they live in New York most of the year because, you know, they... That's where the money is. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Where the jobs are. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So it's kind of amazing that there hasn't been a huge development over the years, that there's more and more new housing in Arrow Rock as actors want to have a little base in the country. Yeah. Well, the thing about Arrow Rock is that it's a nationally designated historic landmark, so there are actually restrictions about building um, new housing there. So, uh, you know, our housing for our, our cast members and crew is actually slightly, it's across the highway. So it's not in the village itself, which I think is why we get away with that. And, you know, that's part of the charm of Arrow Rock is you go there and it is, there's something about it that feels anachronistic, but it also feels very much alive and vibrant. So, you know, it's not like you're going into a postcard that's frozen in time. People are living their lives and very involved in the community there. Now, besides all the actors who come to Ararok, what other behind-the-scenes jobs have to be recruited on a seasonal basis? Sound, lighting, stage Uh, management? So uh, we have a resident scenic designer, Ryan Zerngable, who's there year-round. We have a resident lighting designer, Randy Winder. We've got a costume designer, stitchers who work with the costume designer to make the costumes every year, carpenters, house managers, props manager. Uh, we hire cleaning staff. They're people who work in the the box office. And we also have a lot of volunteers who come in and do ushering for us. Many of them are board members. Um, so that's one of the, the roles that they do kind of for fun and concession, you know, concessions people. And yeah. Well, let's take a quick look at the season you have yeah. coming up. I think all but one of your summer season are Lycian premieres. They are. Um, so the first one you have coming up is Cinderella. Tell us a little bit about that one. So this is Rogers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. It was initially developed, I believe, in the the 50s for television. Uh, And the first production was a live television broadcast. It wasn't recorded. Um, It was later reproduced to be recorded. But it wasn't actually rewritten for the stage until quite recently.
actually. I think it went to Broadway in 2013 or 2014. Um, and we actually are boasting the Missouri Regional Professional premiere of this production. And our principal actors, Delphi Boric, who plays Ella, and Hayden Staines, who's playing Prince Topher, um, have actually toured with the national, the original national production. So they bring a lot of institutional knowledge to, to the production, which is neat. And that opens, I think, on June the 6th. It does. And it runs for two weekends? Yes. I think some shows are already sold out. I'm not going to ask you which ones, but do have a look online. Yeah. Quinn was saying, you know, it, don't just turn up at Arrow Rock and hope you can buy a ticket on the door. Right. So many shows sell out, so do go online first and have a look. And I found a fun fact about The Cinderella. In the 1997 remake, it was Whitney Houston yeah. who played the fairy godmother. It was, yes. <laughs> and then after Cinderella, the next one in the summer you have coming up on June the 27th is All Shook Up. Yes, um, and this one's fun because I think people love the songs of Elvis, of course, of course, which are featured in the play. It's not a play about Elvis. Um, it is inspired by Elvis, but it does feature his, his music. Actually, the season kind of is a, a broad spectrum of beloved American music of, of different kinds. So we've got the music of Elvis. We have Swing Time Canteen toward the end of the season, which is, you know, 1940. Music like the Andrews Sisters. How many of them are straight plays? I think out of the you have four, four or five that have music in. Uh, three musicals and uh, well, not including a Christmas Carol, which is right. kind of off on its own. It is. <laughs> <laughs> um, four plays, but all of the well, all, at least three of the plays incorporate music to a large degree. Um, the difference would be that the musicals are told primarily through musical numbers um the plays incorporate music but most of the the actual drama is furthered by the dialogue so so the first three are are strictly musicals you've got cinderella then Mm -hmm. all shook up and then you have nine to five nine to five yes the dolly parton hit uh, which also started as a movie that seems to be another theme this season and of course i think people recognize the iconic intro to that well let's listen to a little clip of nine to five and kiss my son and grab my purse and I keep running got so much on my plate I could choke working nine to five and that was nine to five very iconic sound from the original production now after you have the three 
the three musicals. Then you have two that I think are really interesting because they both feature very few actors. You have yes. Murder for Two, where you have just two performers performing mm-hmm. 13 roles. And then you have Fully Committed, which is just one person. Performing <laughs> 40, 40 roles. roles. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And in Murder for Two, there are two actors. One actor plays one role and the other actor plays all of the others and it is a murder mystery kind of like an Agatha Christie whodunit um, meets like the game of Clue maybe (laughs) Um, the interesting thing about that is both actors are brilliant pianists and they play they actually play piano during the production and then fully committed is one actor. Uh, he is playing the role of an out-of-work actor, and he mans line at a reservation line at a restaurant in New York. And he also plays all of the people calling in. So um, that's, that's going to be hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> and then we go to Crimes of the Heart, which mm-hmm. is in late August. And then you end the summer season with Swingtime Canteen, mm-hmm. another musical. But then, as you say, then the Arrowrock season doesn't quite end at that point because a Christmas Carol comes up later in December. Right. Gosh, and there you go. Out of time. It goes by so (laughs) fast. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Well, thank you so much, Amy Wilder, the new Director of Marketing and Communications at the Lyceum Theatre in Arrowrock. The Lyceum's summer season opens on June the 6th with a two-week run of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. And you can get tickets by going to lyceumtheatre.org or calling the box office on 660-837-837. 3311. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be back with a little bit of a diversion from my usual programming, a trip to the history of the Eurovision Song Contest. At least some of your questions will be answered after this short break. For the second part of this week's Speaking of the Arts, I'm going to be a trifle self-indulgent and veer off on a bit of an international tangent. Probably my earliest musical memory is gathering around the television set with my family in the early 1970s and tuning in to an annual music programme that was being broadcast live across Europe. The show felt unspeakably glamorous and I felt like I was part of something so intangibly huge. From my sitting room in the much less than glamorous northwest of England, I was watching something that was being viewed simultaneously across a swath of the continent. This was the Eurovision Song Contest. was started in 1956 as a way to bring Europe together after the war. And that first year, the contest was broadcast from Lugano in Switzerland. And it was primarily a radio show, though it was also taped for the few Europeans who had a television at that time. That first year, only seven countries took part and Switzerland won. Flash forward to 
forward to 2019 and Eurovision is the biggest music competition in the world. And with over 100 million viewers across Europe and Australia, it is the most watched TV show in the world that is not a sporting event. Yet despite its massive presence across Europe, it remains mostly an unknown entity across the United States, except maybe in major metropolitan LGBTQ circles, where it made it to the edge of American consciousness in 2015 when a broadcast deal was done with Logo TV. But even though you don't know about the contest, you probably do remember this. By ABBA for Sweden. Watch this one. the Swedish pop group ABBA won the Eurovision Song Contest with their song Waterloo, which went on to become an international hit and was the start of their legendary career. And they are not the only contestants that you might actually have heard of. At that same contest in 1974, the Australian singer Olivia Newton-John, remember Greece and Sandy? Well, she represented the United Kingdom with the song Long Live Love. In 1988, a then relatively unknown Canadian singer called Celine Dion won the contest when she sung Ne Partez Pas Sans Moi for Switzerland. In 1997, the last time that the United Kingdom won the contest, it was Katrina and the Waves who sang the winning hit Love Shine a Light. And for anyone with an interest in the world of drag, 2014 was a huge Eurovision year when the fabulous Conchita Wurst, representing Austria, won with this James Bond-esque number. Waking in the rubble, walking over glass. Neighbors say we're trouble. Well, that time has passed. Peering from the mirror, no, that isn't me. A stranger getting nearer. Who can this person be?
do I love this show so much? Well, aside from the sequins, the bouffants, the spectacular staging, the choreography, the big disco numbers, and yes, the cheesy Europop songs, it is this one incredible night when my disparate continent of cultures and voices all come together. Oh, plus Australia. They've been in the contest since 2015, mainly because they love it so much. It started out as a 60th anniversary gimmick, but it all went so swimmingly that Eurovision invited them to come back again the next year and the next. I guess what I love is that for this one night, we are all united and connected by a music contest. The idea that over 100 million people are all sharing in the same experience is so satisfying in our age of media silos. Sometimes when people ask me why I love it so much, I just say, I don't know, because, well, why indeed? But I put this question to the man I call the god of Eurovision, the executive supervisor for the Eurovision Song Contest, Jon Ola Sand, who chatted with me a couple of weeks ago on Skype from Tel Aviv, where he was already ensconced to oversee the arrangements for the 64th annual Eurovision Song Contest. So my first question to you, Jon Ola, is why do I love Eurovision so much? I'm sure there are studies done on its popularity. What is the answer? <laughs> uh, the answer to why you love Eurovision Song Contest so much is because this is a unique event happening every year and it has happened every year since 1956. It has been traveling all over Europe to every corner in Europe. It's been uh, in, in, in a lot of different countries and every country adds its own flavor to the Song Contest, which means that it, it always develops, it always uh, evolves. And um, and this, of course, creates excitement and, uh, and and love for the contest, uh, I'm sure. It's also the fact that if you win it, you host it. Uh, this excitement is not like with any other big event or sports competition. Um, but but it, the fact that every, every artist on that stage can bring Eurovision Song Contest to their territory it's it's fantastic opportunity and it creates excitement around the song contest. I could talk for hours about why you love Eurovision Song Contest, uh, but I'll leave it with that uh, in, in the first round. For me, it's something to do with the fact that there's 100 million people all doing the same thing as me, that we're all connected. There's this kind of unity of people amidst such a diverse continent. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, this is the moment we share together. And uh, you don't watch Eurovision Song Contest alone. You, you, for, first of all, you know that it's not 100 million, but close to 200 million people all over Europe and abroad who, who is at the same time uh, enjoying Eurovision Song Contest. Uh, but it's also uh, an, ideal, uh, an ideal event to watch together with friends and family. You don't even need to watch it at home. You can watch it in a bar. You can watch it on public squares all over Europe. So it's, it's a fantastic get-together event that unites people, and that's also the purpose for Eurovision Song Contest. Now, as the executive supervisor, your job is to enforce the rules of the Eurovision Song Contest and to oversee the TV production and monitor the voting procedure to make sure a valid result is returned. Now, I love the voting part of the show almost as much as the songs, but explain to Americans how the voting works. 
Well, the, the voting works like this. There is a jury composed of five people in each of the participating countries that will give their uh, votes and score all the songs apart from their own uh, song or the, the, the entry that comes from their country. In addition to this, they, there is an open public voting uh, via SMS, app or uh, ordinary phone where you can place up to 20 calls for the song or the songs that you like the best. These two different results is combined into one result and then it's split up to points. Uh, and it goes all the way from one, two, three, four, five, six, eight, ten, and then the magic 12, 12 points, which is the top point you can get and the top score you can get uh, when you uh, are in the Eurovision Song Contest. Now, the way that you do the voting has changed in recent years. So it used to be uh, just a professional jury, then it was just a telephone vote. But in recent years, it's become both again. So you have 50% telephone vote and 50% public vote. Is that correct? That's correct. And this was mainly done to to get uh, a professional uh, view on the songs because we saw uh, when we only had the televotes or the public votes deciding this, we saw that uh, more and more acts, they tried to to make something that could attract only the, the viewers out there, to make a lot of noise, to get attention. Um, the juries, obviously, which uh, are music professionals, they can, can view the acts and songs differently and give a different kind of score. And we see that every year that, the, that it's not necessarily the same opinion in the juries as it is um, among the TV viewers. And this is good because then we see that the, the quality of the songs, um, they, it, it's, it's getting, they are getting better. They are much more focused on, on, on doing something that also can attract the professional juries and not only the viewers at home. I'm curious about which country has the most active voters. Oh, yeah, it's, it depends because it, it actually depends which country that goes to the final. Because the excitement in the country to vote also for other countries is if you go to the final. But I will say that it, it, it's strong uh, interest in the UK to vote. The Nordics are always high up there. They, they, they cast a lot of votes, but they are small markets. Uh, Germany throw in a lot of votes. Uh, also, um, Greece, uh, very active. Uh, they have also a lot of diaspora. The Polish, uh, very active. So. Uh, but generally, we get um, a good amount of votes from, from all corners of Europe, which means that uh, it, is, it creates excitement and people would like to be part of the decisive um, or have a decisive role who is going to take the trophy home. Now, within Europe, there is the long-held belief that each country votes geopolitically. Sweden, Norway, Denmark and Finland all seem to vote for each other. The former Yugoslavian countries always used to stick together. Nobody, of course, votes for the United Kingdom. So does voting analysis support this theory? No, not really. It's a fact that, that in uh, regions in Europe, like the Nordic region, a lot of uh, the artists that performs are known in, in, the, in the whole region. So for that reason, it's, uh, it's easy to, well, you are, you are familiar with the artists. It's also a sort of one share its common taste. It's the same in the Balkans. So, and, and you see, uh, if you look at the winner over the past years, uh, you will see it's, it's huge variety 
when it comes to territories, when it comes to type of songs, when it comes to to almost any any uh, yeah any any way you can judge it. It's right. it's a huge variety. So so uh, no, it's it's no clear pattern there. Now, another kind of slight controversy that has reigned since 2000 is the designation of the big five countries, United Kingdom, France, Germany, Spain and Italy, who all automatically get included in the final because they make the biggest financial contribution. Is this fair? Well, first of all, it's not only because they contribute financially, uh, substantially to the Eurovision Song Contest, but they also represent huge markets. And, and no one can imagine that we should have a Eurovision Song Contest on air without having Germany, France and UK participating in the final. It would be a huge loss for, for uh, when it comes to viewership. Uh, it would be a huge loss when it comes to, to enthusiasm, engagement. Uh, and all of that. So there are really good reasons to keep uh, the big markets in. If you ask me if it's fair or not, well, look at the results over the last years. I firmly believe that it's beneficial to be in the semifinals because you have the chance to perform on that stage in front of millions of audience um, in the semifinal uh, and, and by that familiarize yourself with uh, the audience. This is the setup how it is. And everyone that participates in Eurovision Song Contest agree upon it. So uh, in that sense, it's fair. It's a part of the rule. This is how Eurovision Song Contest is. And, and, and everyone participating in Eurovision Song Contest agrees to this. Now, the United States remains a black or at least a charcoal gray hole on the Eurovision map. What are your plans for conquering America? Well, we might uh, succeed to get it on the air in the U.S. already this year. Again, we have had uh, an agreement uh, with Viacom, as you know, over the last years. So it has been uh, on logo in the States. Uh, so and we uh, hopefully we will get it on air again this year. So we have to build it slowly. Logo TV is not accessible to a lot of people. So in the old days, I used to be able to stream it live from Eurovision.tv website. But that avenue was, was stopped when Logo TV got that contract. So I, I hope it gets... No, uh, this, this, this is not correct. It wasn't stopped because Logo TV got that contract. It was stopped because uh, YouTube, they don't have an agreement with the collecting societies in the US. Hence, we cannot... Uh, agree to have uh, the, the song contest performed there because the rights holder will not get the, their, the payback that they should have. So this has nothing to do with Logo TV. Oh, well, I, I apologize to Logo TV then. <laughs> it just seemed to give away at the same time. Now, am I right in thinking that Madonna is performing at this year's Eurovision? That is yet not clear. We have not confirmed that from DBU, as you might have seen. When, uh, if, when and if... if let me put it this way. If Madonna is going to perform in Eurovision Song Contest, they will be announced on our official channels and not on any other blogger site or, or anything. It's not confirmed. Now, this year, the Netherlands are the firm favorites to win with a beautiful ballad called Arcade, sung by Duncan Lawrence. Are you allowed to have a favorite? Mm, no, not really. Uh, I, I don't have any favorites. It's it's not a part of my job to have favorites. So, uh, so no, I, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really good song. He's a, he's a great artist. It's a lot of strong interest this year. So, uh, but uh, I don't have a favorite. Uh, one of my listeners asked me to ask you, how about your most memorable song that you thought should have won, but didn't, like Finland's Marry Me, which had massive audience support in the concert arena, but came almost last. I think that's probably my most memorable song that didn't win. Have you got one too? No, I don't. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much, Yonola. We will be watching the 64th annual Eurovision Song Contest live in mid-Missouri on May the 18th from my living room. So do give us a wave. Thank you and take it away. Thank you, Yonola. Thanks to Jan Olesan, the executive supervisor for the Eurovision Song Contest, and the man in charge not only of making the world's largest music competition go smoothly in Tel Aviv, but also tasked with making sure all of Europe's votes are properly recorded. As I mentioned in our interview, the favourite to win this year is Duncan Lawrence, representing the Netherlands and singing Arcade. Favourite at least according to the odds listed on Eurovisionworld.com, which I should point out is a private fan community website and not an official channel of the European Broadcasting Union. Let's take a listen. A broken heart is all that's left I'm still fixing all the cracks Lost a couple of pieces when I carried it, carried it, carried it home I'm afraid of all I am My mind feels like a foreign land Silence ringing inside my head Please carry me, carry me
That was Duncan Lawrence singing Arcade. Duncan will be representing the Netherlands at this year's Eurovision Song Contest. Now, I may be one of the few people in the mid-Missouri area who will be glued to the live stream from Tel Aviv, but if you are interested in hearing all of this year's songs, you can find them at eurovision.tv slash participants, or they are also all available on YouTube. And although Americans have been able to watch the Eurovision Song Contest on Logo TV, as we said in the interview for the past few years, it does now appear that this year Logo will not be broadcasting the show, which means you'll need to find a web browser that lets you watch it via one of the European national broadcasting channels. Of course, that means you'd have to listen to the commentators discuss the 26 entries and voting procedures in Swedish or Albanian, but that is part of the fun. This week, I have been glued to the two semifinals which took place on Tuesday and Thursday, and which whittled the 41 competing countries down to 26. For any fans of Finland, Portugal, Belgium, or any one of the other 12 countries that didn't make it, then sorry, you're out at the final this year. But in exciting news for any Australian Eurovision fans, the awesome Katie Miller-Heitke and her visually stunning semi-operatic performance atop an eight-foot bendy pole has rocketed up the odds into second place and is definitely a hot contender. And if you are curious enough to search out one entry, then that is the one. And having now watched all the acts perform in the semifinals, I think... I'm going to give my 12 points, my deuce point, to either Sweden or Australia. But there are some other really hot contenders for that coveted top spot. Switzerland, Russia, Azerbaijan and Norway all gave awesome semi-final performances. And the great thing about the new voting system is that you don't even know until right at the very end who is going to win. The votes of all the professional juries are revealed first, but the public vote rarely tallies exactly with the professional jury. So a country might be sitting in top place after the jury votes, but after the public votes are fed in, it can all change. Let's listen to a little tiny clip of the Australian entry for Eurovision. It's called Zero Gravity. just a short clip of Katie Miller-Heidke singing Zero Gravity, Australia's entry for this year's Eurovision Song Contest. And so to conclude, thank you, Columbia, for indulging me as I veered a little off course to take you on a tour of the Eurovision Song Contest. As usual, we will end this week's Speaking of the Arts with a look at some of the events that are going to be happening live and in mid-Missouri over the next seven days. In a rare weekend for Columbia, I don't think there are any theatre performances this weekend, but the music world continues apace. Tonight at the Blue Note, Kentucky-based rock and roll quartet Blackstone Cherry are on stage along with Nashville rock and roll band Tyler Bryant and The Shakedown. Their show starts at 7.30 
City and tickets are $20. At Rose Music Hall, six-piece funk powerhouse Steady Flow performed tonight along with Columbia's own Dumpster Kitty. Tickets for their 9pm show cost $8. Saturday morning, the Boone History and Culture Centre's regular Meet the Author series continues with Rosalie Metro talking about her book, Have Fun in Burma, a novel. Rosalie's talk starts at 10.30 and that's free to attend. Saturday evening, there is a 155th birthday celebration for John William Blind Boone at his house on North 4th Street. This is a free event and runs from 5 till 8. At Talking Horse Productions, Ed Hansen returns for his Sinatra Supper Club performance, which also doubles as a fundraiser for Talking Horse. For your $75 ticket, you not only get an evening of Sinatra, courtesy of Columbia's favourite crooner, but also a three-course dinner served by Room 38 Restaurant. And Saturday night at Rose Park, Orchard Fire are giving a Fleetwood Mac tribute. Their show starts at 8pm and a ticket it will cost you $8 on the gate. Folk singer Bill Staines is stopping off in Columbia next Monday to perform an evening concert at the Daniel Boone Regional Library. He has performed on a Prairie Home Companion, Mountain Stage, The Good Evening Show and a host of programmes on PBS and Network TV. You can hear his concert from 7 till 8pm and it's a free concert with no need to pre-register. Tuesday morning from 10 till 11.30, the Museum of Art and Archaeology's informal sketch group will have its regular third Tuesday get-together. No previous experience is required and you you are welcome to just show up. They even have drawing suppliers available. And whilst you are there, check out the brand new exhibition called Missouri Nostalgia. Works on paper from the Scruggs Vandervoort Barney Collection. And Tuesday evening, Rose Park's Movies in the Park summer season continues with Talladega Nights starring Will Ferrell. Movie starts at 8.30 and is free to attend. Next Wednesday, Texas singer-songwriter Molly Birch is playing at Rose Music Hall as part of her first Flower album tour. And the lineup for the night also includes Columbia's own Ray Fitzgerald. The concert starts at 8.30 and tickets are $8. At Skylark Bookshop next Thursday, Rockbridge High School will be launching their yearly literary magazine, Folio, which showcases student art, poetry, music competitions and manuscripts. It's a free event open to all and it's from 6 till 7.30. And finally at Rose Music Hall, the Rose Comedy Club night, Pints and Punchlines starts at 9pm next Thursday. And after that, everything kind of winds down for Memorial Day weekend, but enjoy the breather as it all ramps up again in early June. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Mox, and my good friend and sound engineer Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews views on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia.